This is Reverend Chuck Blair. Welcome to our weekly podcast on New Church Live. So my name is Curtis, and we're here today to talk uh, about how to disagree like an angel. And I want to open by bringing to mind, because we're probably all already aware, of how important of a tool dialogue is. Think about the critical function that dialogue provides. I don't speak here that often, so I'll just keep using the same metaphors over and over every time I come here, which is you're thinking about the production that we have here in order to take this, what's happening up here, beam it through the internet, beam it out to people. There is a lot of dialogue that had to happen to make that work. The machines are dialoguing, and there's got to be just the right implements there. If you try to plug the wrong cable in the wrong spot, and I've done it, so I know, it doesn't work. But if there's not coordination between if I don't know when I'm coming out versus when they're going to turn the lights on, if the sound and the booth don't work together, nothing can happen. And that's in a relatively simple system. You think about your, the human body and the dialogue that has to happen inside there for things to work. When you, you eat and you breathe at the same spot, and if any food or water gets into the lungs, which empty out the mouth, you're in huge trouble. You have you, any idea how, what kind of dialogue is necessary between those two systems to know, okay, right now, food's going in, so the, the lungs have got to be safe. Okay, now I've got to breathe, so no food and water in. It's amazing. And this is absolutely extends to human society. Dialogue is this critical tool. There is an interfaith, uh, the in- Dialogue Institute in Philadelphia that we actually got to, uh, at Off the Left Eye, interview the director. And he had this awesome quote, which I don't know if he made it up or not, but I'll, I, I'm going to give him credit for it now, which is, nobody knows everything about anything. Therefore, dialogue. That's pretty good. And it's actually true. And if you're saying, well, no, I know everything about X, the rest of us wish you didn't believe that. <laughs> because nobody knows everything about anything. And this is not just uh, a natural principle. This is a spiritual principle. And we're going to be sh- seeing in a little while here that it's actually a key facet of angelic wisdom or, or of the heavenly mindset that we're here at church trying to get to, a key component of it is that nobody knows everything about anything. So stay tuned for that. Right now, though, I want to begin by talking about conversations that we're bad at. Because dialogue is great. And while sometimes it can be a lot of work to go out and really listen, nobody's that anti-dialogue. However, when there's dialogue connected to a disagreement, then suddenly dialogue becomes a lot more difficult. And it can very often devolve into a debate or there's a disagreement in there. And I'm not saying that there's never a place for debate, but every step that you move in that direction, the chances of it being a productive encounter decrease. And Unfortunately, often we move past debate into just fighting. You're just fighting. And what's the difference? Well, when you're fighting, 
You're trying to win rather than trying to learn. We're not trying to solve the problem, we're trying to win. Because we think we already know everything about something, which we don't. The guy at the interfaith, at the, uh, there's two, there's two organizations that we interviewed for the same episode. One was the Interfaith Institute and then the other was the Dialogue Institute. I'm getting them confused in my mind. But the point is, it's hard to have good conversations. And right now, we're having a difficult time having good conversations. I emailed all of you, or Angela did it um, as a favor to me, asking, hey, what conversations do you all, New Church Live Congregation, think that we're bad at having? And last time I spoke here, I asked a question, and I got a bunch of great responses from everybody. So I assumed I'll get a bunch this time, but I only got one. So there's a couple of possible scenarios. One, it was a it could have been just a dumb question, so nobody wanted to answer it. Could have been poorly. I could have written it out poorly. But the third option is that it's uh, not just not a f- pleasant subject for anyone to get into, right? The what conversations are we bad at having? Luckily, that one response was so good. It's actually under the next slide I'm about to get to, which is how can we get better at conversations? That that, that response kind of stole my thunder for this whole thing, but we're going to read it anyway. But I'll go ahead and, and volunteer a conversation that we're bad at having. Politics. Intentional hard P on that in the microphone. And I just right now, aren't I like on a knife's edge of like, is he going to mention something? You can probably demographic me and, and say like, okay, well, he's probably this or that. And isn't it so like there's so much pent up tension and energy that is seriously depleting our ability to solve problems. How do we get better at this? How would some spiritual principles improve our ability to have discussion around these ideas? You know how I know that there's dysfunction in political discourse? Because when you tell somebody, well, you, you can't bring that up, it's political, it's gotten political, what does that mean, gotten political? What are you really saying to somebody when you say, like, that's gotten political? It means people are irrational when they talk about it, right? You're trying to warn somebody, look, you can't just have that conversation. There's too much fury around it, right? So what, what do you do when you're in that situation? That's the big one, though. And sure, it like shows up at Thanksgiving and, and like in November. But aren't there a lot of other places that are not a universal conversation, but are absolutely as important in individuals' lives? Do we have trouble having conversations within families, within organizations? So as we go through this stuff, this angelic wisdom about it, just be thinking, how do I take this into the conversations where I am, because we're all playing a part in these conversations, and it, we can improve them. It doesn't have to be like this. We Human beings are not living up to their potential for dialogue, for effective dialogue, even in difficult issues. Some people will think, oh, that means you just kind of sweep the issues themselves under the rug. I don't think so. I don't think we're all going to agree on stuff, but I think we can make a lot of progress up towards getting that the efficacy of dialogue back. Okay. So, how do we get better? And this is where we got this awesome response from Bob, congregation member at New Church Live. So, how do we get better at these conversations? And this could be personal conversations, organizational, national, global. So, he he listed a couple of 
great tips. And we can think about this whenever we're going into a conversation. First of all, why do we have to have this conversation at all? And I don't see that as, why do we have to have this? But why are we here? What's everybody's motivation that's actually bringing them in the door to be here? Is it better to not have the conversation? <laughs> there are times. It's, no, just let it go. Are we asking ourselves, is this just to rev our engine? As Swedenborg would call it, the pleasures of insanity, that I just like winning. Get into a heated debate, feel alive because we're in a fight. There's other places, we gotta actually work to get our jollies in other places because when we say, oh, I'm just gonna go and beat people up because it's fun, it ruins discussion, right? And that's a, that's a public square that we gotta be able to be in. I argue, therefore I am. Are we engaged in conversation solely to feel alive, quell boredom, have a story to tell others? Can't we self-soothe instead? Go take a walk. Can we converse about the underlying issue? Stop personifying the topic. Conversations motivated by changing another's view are not conversations. Oh, because there's no dialogue in it. You're not actually believing that the other person might know something that you don't know. But the chances are, yeah, the people that I'm talking to know something. Even though it's, of course they don't. Of course I know everything about it. They know something that I don't know about it. How do we have conversations only when we are open to changing our point of view? Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. You completely summarized everything that I'm trying to get at here today. So we'll break and we're done. No, but I, I think that it's an easy step. And this is actually something I had written prior to receiving that response from Bob, which is, leads us to what I would call a compass question. And Bob's already doing that when he's asking those. But the compass question would be, how does God approach conversations? You want to look for a role model of some repute? How does God approach conversations? And this is something that I think you hear in Bob's questions there. Like, I'm aspiring toward an ideal, and I have these sort of fences I'm putting around my behavior and my motivations because I know that somewhere out there there's the platonic ideal of, of rightness and trueness and goodness, which we, I would say is God. So how does God approach conversations? And I want to look in particular, oh, I just put my stool back here, and this is right when I need this stool. I want to look at, in the Bible, how does God approach conversations? This is actually a fascinating thing to look at, because when we're saying, I went on and on in the beginning, nobody knows everything about anything. Well, does somebody? Doesn't God know everything about something? So, aren't we setting us up here for the greatest catharsis? Because if we're looking at, we're really, we want to argue, you have a disagreeing viewpoint, the greatest thing is to totally crush the opposition. And if there was ever going to be a landslide debate, it would be God against a person. You know? Because if you're sitting there practicing, trying to get smarter and smarter about your subject, so that the person next to you, you can argue with them and win. Well, you're, you're never going to be as smart as God, right? So isn't this going to be great when God really lays into people? But how does God actually talk to people in the Bible? For somebody who knows everything, what, what tools, what conversation uh, techniques does God use? And the fact is, God asks a lot of questions, God is always, throughout the whole Bible, 
God in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New Testament, is always asking people questions. What? I'm sorry. Can we stop wasting time? God, you know everything. Why are you asking us questions? I would say, and this is just my synthesis, you don't have to go with it, but there seems to be two objectives that God has before we look at examples in conversations. One is using, there's a tool and a purpose. And the tool is the opening of what I just, there was just a, um, I was in a meeting with an executive coach, somebody who talks with CEOs of companies and gets them to understand their weaknesses. That's probably a fun job. I'm sure a lot of CEOs want to hear about that and understand where they can improve. And he was saying, there's this awesome dynamic of the creative mind versus the defensive mind. And when you go to somebody trying to provoke a response, are you trying to provoke the creative mind? Oh, what could it be like? How could we get there? Or the defensive mind, which is you're trying to, you're trying to kill me in some way and I'm holding on to what I have. God is always trying to provoke the creative mind. So he uses the tool of provoking the creative mind and universally God's intention is to improve the welfare of the person that, that he's talking to. Okay. I will give you some examples. And, and just even, even when God is not has have some kind of disagreement with somebody. You think about, you remember when Jesus heals the man's eyes who is blind? He spits on the clay, rubs it on there. It's pretty famous. And then, then when he's done, Jesus asks him, what do you see? And he says, I see men like trees walking. And then he heals them again. Why is Jesus asking him that? Why? He, he's God. He knows that but it's something about leading us through this talking. When the disciples uh, are, you know, there's this conversation going on with the disciples and they're relaying to Jesus who the different groups of people say that he is. Who, who do people think Jesus is? Because throughout the Gospels, there's this sort of subplot of everybody kind of starting to realize that Jesus is God. And he says, who do you, who do you guys, or, or, they're telling him what people think about his identity. And Jesus says to the disciples, who do you think I am? What, what is You're talking about, there's a bit of a, a status gap there, isn't there? Why is he asking them, who do you think I am? Let's get to some examples. So those are just when there's dialogue. Let's get to some examples where there's debate. Oh, this is uh, in John. And this is this amazing story about um, condemning versus improving or... And look at... So this is the story of the, the woman caught in adultery. You probably are familiar with it. It's pretty famous. I guess I'm choosing all the famous quotes here today because if it ain't broke. And what he's... The situation, if you're not familiar, is there's... Um, yeah. It's a lot like the title. There's a woman who has been caught in adultery in the laws of the culture at the time. This is punishable by being stoned to death. And the Pharisees are bringing her to Jesus because they're a little miffed that he's so popular and 
He's all about saying all these love, love things. Well, we're going to nail him and get him to say you have to kill this woman, which they knew probably he didn't want to do or make him look bad or something. It's just a very grisly situation. But with, even with the stakes that high and what they're trying to do, look at the way that Jesus engages with them. So I'll read, I'll read this is uh, John 8, I'll start at verse 3. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. It's a trap. Although the stakes are obviously much higher for the woman. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. And I don't know. I love that detail, but I don't know why he does it. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, what does he say? He said, you're all evil. I'm God. This is where you're... Look what he said. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Look at that statement. That statement, it's confrontational, sure, but they're the ones who started it. But what's it doing? It's... It is an automatic introspection injection. It says, there's so much folded up in that sentence because it says, look at the human experience and think about what it's been like for you and life. And you look, suddenly look at things instead of in this black and white, you're trying to be really pharisaical here. They think about life in the way it is. Opens them up to the entire idea of empathy, but it's, it's not quite with a question mark on it. But it's a question. It's, it's really, have any of you not done something wrong? And what does that do? Then those who heard it, becoming convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. The people who've been around got it faster. Jesus didn't even convict them. He just opened up the creative mind and said, just really, just really take a look at what you're doing here. And that was enough. The conscience convicted them, and he, and he saved their life. And afterwards, there's a famous line of him saying, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. That's awesome. That's how God approaches that conversation. Oh, we're going to have to fly through some of these. But I wanted to go uh, Mark 12. There's a really good one. There's a really good one. So this is 12, 13 to 17. Then they sent him, some of the Pharisees and the Herodians, to catch him in his words. Again, trying to trap him. And when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's a pretty good one. Because the political climate was really dicey at the time. As I said, it is here. And they're going to get Jesus, really get him to make some anti-Roman statement and nail him. Or he's going to be some sellout and he's not really going to challenge the power structure. Shall we pay or shall we not? But he, noticing their hypocrisy, it's not like they weren't being bad, but look what he says to them. And look how many questions are in it. Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to him, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. 
And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So what's he do? All he's doing is asking. They're doing the work. They're going and getting the coin. They're looking at the coin. And he's just saying, hey, the picture's already there. Don't you think it's already spoken for? And what's the end result? Are they, are they defeated? Are they humiliated? What are they? they, they they're marveling. Have we opened up the creative mind there? Can you see a bit of the intent uh, in this of the, the will to promote even the welfare of what are, who are Jesus' greatest enemies in the New Testament? It's the Pharisees. I mean, that's who he argues with. And he really goes at them. But I would argue that there is this same love here that I mentioned in the beginning. Because listen, this is finally Matthew 37. When he's talking, he's just been ripping into the Pharisees. He does it. He's got, there's some really harmful stuff they're doing. I'm saying we're not going to stop disagreeing. But then he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. I'm going to get choked up reading this. Because you go from, oh, I'm mad at you. I'm mad at you. And doesn't it seem like it feels like God is mad at us in life, just by the way life buffets us around. But then you see a little bit like God shows his hand here. How often I had wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And that that maternal image, like the tenderest little image, that's what he's doing in all these, that's the heart that's driving these conversations. That's a lot. It's going to be very difficult for us to emulate God. But knowing how does God approach the situation, that God engages the creative mind, and that God has this will, the purpose, this purpose to improve the lives of the people he's talking to, improve the common good, we can keep that and try to emulate what we can to an extent. So what's it look like when you are emulating that to an extent? Because we're going to talk about angels after the break. I mean, come on, it was in the title. It's why you're all here. If, if people are here, I can't see. So how is it? Because to be angelic is to be a person who's on the path of God. We keep getting more and more loving and more and more wise. That is what getting more and more angelic is. So what's it like when angels have to chew over some issues together. We'll take a look at a real live, not live, recorded, pre-described angelic debate right after. We take a second, listen to a song. So just let this idea of how would God approach this conversation, let that sink into you and let's keep it in our, our hearts from when we're going forward. Okay, a little bit of music, then I'll be back. I almost tripped coming out here. Seriously. I was tripped on a cable there. It would have been it would have been okay, but I'm just glad it didn't happen. Okay. I thought thought maybe I'd said something wrong and I was getting instantly smited for it. Okay, so let's talk about angels. I love that this is a very good song tie-ins in this show. So um there this is coming out of uh, actually, not this book, but this is another one of uh, the New Church Theology or Swedenborg's writings. And this is, we're going to be looking at a spiritual experience here. 
So this is, this is something that is actually very much more common than anybody thinks it is. I and mean, when you survey people and said, how many of you have had some kind of spiritual experience? It's a staggeringly large percentage of the population. These in particular are some of the, what I feel like are the best preserved spiritual experiences ever. So this is Emanuel Swedenborg, who you'll hear me talk about all the time, off the left eye, what I do on the internet is all just taking Swedenborg's material and, and you know, getting, getting rich off of it. <laughs> and what is so cool is that here we have, this is him describing, look, I, I went and there's this life after death that we're all assuming is here and, and believing in. And I got to go see it. And actually, there's society there. And there is structure. And there is a need for the... For example, I was going on and on about dialogue before. And what a, what a fragile, beautiful, essential thing it is. And we were talking the whole first, time, the whole first section about it. We've got to preserve dialogue. You've got to work hard at it. Isn't that it's like so many things in, in life? What would it be if you just threw that away? When you went to the afterlife, how could the afterlife be so much less full and colorful than that? So actually everything there, everything that happens here is sort of like a rudiment of what needs to continue and go on there. So there are mechanisms of conversation. And there is this one time when Swedenborg is up in heaven. And this is a particular conversation that he saw where angels had to get together and solve something. It's from his book, True Christianity, number 48. I once had a conversation with two angels, one of whom came from a heaven in the east and the other from a heaven in the south. Directions matter. We'll be talking about that in a second. When these angels realized that I was meditating on secrets of wisdom having to do with love, they said, are you not aware of the wisdom games that take place in our world? Not yet, I said. There are lots of them, they said. They explain that spirits who love truth in a spiritual way. Spirits, by the way, we are all spirits. You have a body and a spirit. Loving, oh, and what is it to love truth in a spiritual way? It's loving it because it's true and because it leads to wisdom. Or in other words, why am I having a conversation about this? Is because I want, I want the truth to come out rather than I want to be the one that wins this conversation. This is where those kind of people gather together on receiving a sign. These spirits then debate issues that require deep understanding and draw conclusions. So even in heaven, there's debate. But is it the same kind of <gasps> tension that we get when we have debate here? I can't even watch the televised debate. I just feel like it makes me tired and sad. So what is it like? And actually, I'm not going to read you the whole angelic debate. It's too long. I tried to like, in getting ready for this, tried to slice it up and say, we could read this part, that, but also you get so sucked into the material they're talking about, we'll lose the structure. So I'm just going to paraphrase a bit of it, but we're also going to look at these key angelic principles that inform what it is to discuss when you are, you know, progressing towards love and wisdom. So the, there's these four groups that show up. And let's take a look at the spiritual directions here. So there's the way that spiritual things are is kind of like physical things, but it's kind of not because the core of what physical things are is material. 
So this, I'm up here because this is where the stage is. It doesn't necessarily mean that I have a, a different mindset or a different um, belief system than anybody. I'm here just because I walked up here. Whereas spiritually, it's not material, it's at the heart of it, it's consciousness. It's at the heart of it. So what you love and what you believe actually positions you. It, it, it determines where you are relative to everything else and these other people that love and believe these things. So in the afterlife, you have these four directions. And this is how Swedenborg describes them. He says that the north is wisdom and intelligence in dim light. And this is the reason everything is laid out like this is because here we've got a sun, the sun, and all the different directions. If you say, oh, I'm from, I'm from up north, you know that they're from somewhere cold, if you're in the whatever hemisphere we're in. And you know if you say, oh, I'm, I'm from down south, you're somewhere that's got a warmer climate because it's all relative to the positioning of the sun. But there, it's not the sun, it's God. God plays that same role, bringing the heat and the spiritual heat and light to it. So if you're in the north, spiritually, what does it mean to be in the north? What's the equivalent of having this colder climate that's wisdom and intelligence in dim light? South is wisdom and intelligence in clear light. So we're talking about the axis of intellect. But there's also east-west. So the west is love and it's good, dimly perceived. So the right motivations. And east is love and it's good, clearly perceived. So you're moving away or towards God in terms of love. And that would be your, your motivations for things. Why are you doing things? The farther away, farther away your motivation is from the divine motivation, which is, sounds big and intimidating, but it's just uh, the divine motivation could be summed up, I want to benefit everyone. Whereas the opposite of that is, I want to benefit myself only. So the further you, you are into that, the farther west you go. And then there's intelligence. So the farther north you go, the, far, the colder you get is the less and less you see things as they really are. And the further south you go, the warmer you get, the more and more you see things as they really are. So there's four, those four directions. You have these different groups of angels show up from those directions. So you have already a disparity in getting itness. So this should be quick, right? The direction that has everything is the east. So it's going to be that people who are there they're going to win it right away, and they're just going to push everyone out. But that's actually not how this is conducted. And I'll give you the question. So this is a question, Swedenborg. And it's, it's interesting either way. The question Swedenborg hears them talking about is, human beings were created in the image and likeness of God. What is that image and what is that likeness? Isn't, it, isn't that a strange thing, if I can just tangent for a second? We're created in the image and likeness of God. I mean, that's out of the Bible, but I don't necessarily feel like... I mean, I'm losing my hair really fast. I, 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 don't, I don't seem like I'm in the image of... What does that mean? What does it mean to be in the image of likeness of God? So they go through it, and there's this... There's this each group <clears throat> says some wisdom about what it is and what it does. But by the end, the last line is... Even though they say different things, all agreed with this and said, we need to draw a conclusion from all this. 
And what I actually was hanging out with Pastor Chuck when we were coming up with the idea for this talk, and he was telling me some things that he loved about the nature of what he saw in these angelic discussions. One was that everybody got a turn to speak. So even though you have people from these different perspectives and you could easily say, well, some of these people don't know as much as I do. Actually, you went around and each group offered and it was not always the same opinion. They were relatively harmonious, but everybody gave their own perspective and actually the idea was filled out. Even though at the end, the East went and they knew it the best, so they had sort of the definitive statement, but that statement was brought into greater clarity and greater fullness by hearing these other perspectives and being able to distill them. Nobody, not even these guys, knows everything about anything. So another thing Chuck liked is that it's going around, like we're hearing from this group, but really it's an eternal sort of cycle, because even the angelic mind continues to improve and improve. So as we here say, I have a lot to learn, that's always true. Swedenborg even says at one point that there's these different layers of knowledge. If you think about the difference between the kind of world a four-year-old can understand, what concepts they can and can't grasp, and just think about that versus you're talking about your 401k or something that they just couldn't quite comprehend these levels of knowledge that there are these levels that keep opening but there's some there's multiple levels that that God that nobody can understand God can only stand, understand like the last large number of them so it's good to keep that in mind and we'll get into a little bit of why that humility is so essential here there's the point though of what really made this an angelic conversation versus a regular one has to do with love. I, I know, that's sort of a cop-out, but I'm going to give you exactly what I'm talking about. This is from Secrets of Heaven, uh, which is that book that I was showing you. And this is, we're getting into a couple principles that drive the angelic approach to disagreement. Because right now, I was talking about, oh, there's politics, and politics is where people really disagree. Historically, that's been religion. What are the two things you don't bring up? Religion and politics. But there, even though now, I mean, sure, there's some large scale, but in, in, um, not that long ago, like the clashes between different, even within Christianity, the different denominations, this was like life and death sort of stuff. So this is this fascinating statement that Swedenborg makes about what would really what really unites people around religious things and what should unite them. And it's about the primacy of love over ideas. And this is just like Jesus is talking to the Pharisees that say, look, this woman broke the rules, you've got to kill her. And he's saying, hey, cut her a break. You're not that great yourself. That's love instead of, that's love driving ideas rather than ideas being used uh, to hit people over the head with. So this is Secrets of Heaven 1285. A doctrinal view is united when everyone loves each other or displays charity. Mutual love and charity bring such people into one despite the variety among them because it draws unity out of variety. There's going to be variety. There's going to be variety of opinions on current issues. We're never going to get it so that what's the end game? The end game is never going to be everybody thinks the same. But there can still be unity while there's variety. 
when everyone practices charity or loves each other, then no matter how many people there are, even if they number in the hundreds of millions, they share a single goal. How do you love someone that disagrees with you? You share a single goal. The single goal is the common good, the Lord's kingdom and the Lord himself. And really, the Lord's kingdom and the Lord himself are extensions of that. When the goal is the common good, we're asking with our compass question, why am I coming into this debate, this discussion, this argument? What's the goal? Am I in it for myself or am I in it for the common good? Because I'm trying to get people to see a truth that will benefit all because it's true. That's the nature of truth. That is, that's the real question. Right? When you, when everybody, even if we have these vast disagreements about the means to get to the end, if everybody has the same end, which is the common good, and this is something I have to constantly check myself for. Am I actually here because I want to benefit the common good, or am I here because I want to benefit myself? It's a, it's part of the human condition, and it's something that we continually gotta look at, but that is, if you want a quick little thing you can take out of your pocket anytime. Am I here to, for myself or for the common good? Variety in doctrine and worship are, again, like the variety of senses and organs in the human body which contribute to the perfection of the whole. When the doctrine or worship varies, then the Lord, by working, working by means of charity, affects and acts on us, each in a way uniquely suited to our personality. You've got a way that's right for you. It doesn't mean it's going to be the right way for somebody else. There's enough difference that we have to be able to find a way to work harmoniously. In this way, he fits each and every one of us into the order of things on earth just as it is in heaven. And you think about, if you think about all this different stuff in the body, if everything, if all the cells functioned the same, we'd be in a lot of trouble. You need to have that variety. But the variety is only good if the goal is the same. There's a ton of different variety in the different organs and systems in the body, but if they're not pulling for the same thing, which is the common good, which we call homeostasis, the body in health, if they're not pulling for the common good, then you're, you're, uh, you're cancer or you're whatever else, right? That, that's what it is on a cellular level. So we've got to make sure, are we in the body? Are we fitting into this? I'm, what I really am going for is the common good, which I think... Deep down, we all acknowledge, is, is a good thing to do. Is it for self only, or is it for the common good? So I have one more. Uh, if we're talking about angels in this angelic perspective, I have this cool look at uh, nobody knows everything about anything. And that this is the other key. So there's the motivation and then the knowledge are the keys to this, are improving our ability to dialogue. And motivation's got to be common good, right? We've got to have that or else it's just, it's theater. We're not actually entering these conversations to do anything good. It's just theater. So you've got to have that. I'm really here for the common good. But the intellectual side of it is that there's actually this baked in need for intellectual humility. And there's a really fascinating way it's described here. In any human being but the Lord, this is Swedenborg talking again, holiness can dwell only in ignorance. If it does not dwell in ignorance, it's not holy. 
I don't know what he means. Let's go on and see if we can, if we can tease it out. Even among the angels themselves, so these same these people who have made it to the state we're all trying to get to, who enjoy the greatest possible light from understanding and wisdom, so they know a lot more than we do, who in, uh, holiness resides in ignorance. So what does that mean? What would that look like practically? Is it you're supposed to not learn stuff? They recognize and admit that they know nothing on their own, and anything they do know comes from the Lord. According to Swedenborg, the capacity to form an, a thought is a gift that's given to us by God. It feels like it's us originating it, but just like life itself, if God hadn't, and if God hadn't brought that to life in us, we wouldn't have it. And you just think about the human experience. Uh, you know, I just became an uncle, and there's these cute little pictures I'm getting to see of this little teeny baby. That baby cannot do anything for itself. And that's the state we all started in. And we depended on other people. And other people absolutely gave themselves to making it so that we got to where we are. So it's not that hard to believe that we owe everything we have to God as well. They also recognize and admit that all their learning, their understanding, and their wisdom is nothing compared to the Lord's infinite knowledge, and therefore that theirs is ignorance. Doesn't matter how much you know, in the grand scheme of things, you're totally ignorant about whatever you're talking about. (laughs) That sounds a little harsh, but it's awesome because it brings this softening to it. It doesn't mean that you don't potentially know more than somebody you're talking to. Their intellectual disparities do exist. Knowledge disparities do exist. But to un- I just find, just try it as a psychological experiment, to think while you're engaged in some kind of conversation, well, in the grand scheme, I know barely anything about this. It just brings this softening to the edges. If we fail to acknowledge that what we do not know amounts to infinitely more than what we do know, we cannot experience the holy ignorance of the angels. So learn and know and apply that knowledge to the betterment of the human race. But if you don't keep perspective, which is that I am just starting to learn about anything that I think I know everything about, that, if you don't do that, you're never going to be able to convince yourself not to fall into this, like I'm going to beat everyone at everything, because it's that certainty that what we know is right that lends ourselves to getting trapped in these little cycles where we think, like, I'm going to, I am a vigilante because I've got it all figured out. Holy ignorance, which is really fun. I really like that. So what can we emulate from all that? I mean, I think if we look back at our tool set, you know, we have, when God approaches conversations, God does it with two things. One is the opening of the creative mind, which on our end looks like understanding that we have ignorance. So there's the mental aspect to it, and then there's the emotional aspect. There is the love, which is, am I, for God, it's, it's being there already deep within, I'm doing this for you. I care more about you in this conversation than I care about myself. Hard for us to get there, but we can definitely check ourselves a little bit by saying, am I bringing any love for the common good to this conversation or is it just love for myself and if it's just love for myself 
We're my, my own little group. Can I expand that and, and say, but can I tap into a little of this love from God for everyone? The same kind of love that's like to the Pharisees who were doing real damage and were on the opposite side of the intellectual spectrum, the political spectrum from Jesus. And what's he, what's he saying to them? He's like, I, I want to give you a hug. Like, I wish, I am grief-stricken over the fact that I can't just gather you here under my wings. And I absolutely would if you would just let me for a second. So that kind of love can beat in our chests in little ways. And listen, I think about, was it the Lorax? Where um, he says at the end, this is by Dr. Seuss, if we're quoting scripture. Uh, Unless people like you care an awful lot, nothing's going to get better. It's not. I don't know if, that, if that's the exact words, but that's the spirit of it. And unless we each go down there and do the hard work of trying to improve the way we have conversations and why we're approaching these, it won't get better. We, we already see. It's too, it gets, there's too much inertia. Things just get more and more destructive. So it's up to us. We're the ones who've, who've got to do it. So let's, say, let's uh, have a little bit of reflection time. A little bit of prayer time to kind of ask for the, the opening of hearts. I'll just say a couple of words and then we'll have a, um, a silent chance for, for you and God to, to think it out. Okay, so. Thanks, God, for everything that you gave us. The, the ability to think, the ability to love, the ability to live, and the ability to dialogue with each other. Help us understand the importance of communication the shared nature of our experience here, and, and that the goal, let the goal be your goal, which is the public good, the good of all. Please help us to remember that there's something greater than pulling things just in to win or to be ours, that there is a love that's deeper and more beautiful than that, and that there is room for us all to form this unity out of variety, and please bring that to pass in whatever way is best fit and help me to do my little part to to make that happen. So now hear the words that are on our hearts and let us listen for you as well. Okay, come back, and I hope you've found something that you can take with you. It doesn't have to be exactly what I said. Make a variation on it. Do whatever's going to work for you, but I think we can have enough of a picture of where we're headed to to go there joyfully together. Hey, we're going to end with some music to uplift the hearts and mind. It's been great getting to talk to you, and I hope it goes out with you into your week and, and does something positive there. So here's our last song. Thank you for listening. You can support this podcast at www.newchurchlive.tv.